Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of What They Aren't Telling You with Melissa Floyd. Today, I am with someone who is going to give you a very interesting new interpretation and a different viewpoint on how we look at virology, how we look at viruses, how we look at the immune system, and and how does that relate to the pandemic and what we're seeing right now. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Tom Cowan. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show and talking to me about this. So for those of you who have listened to the vaccine conversation with me and Dr. Bob, we also interviewed him and had a great two-part series in our season one that talked about some great things based on a book he had written. So a lot of good information there. Make sure to check it out. And I will give you his contact information to follow him and, and get more information. He puts really amazing educational videos up on his website, and I will give you that contact information at the end of this episode. So I know there is a lot of confusion right now with what's going on. There are a lot of people confused just in general. We feel like a lot of the information we've been given is contradictory. It's conflicting. A lot of the medical experts are saying one thing and a couple months later are saying something else. And I think that there is a lot of distrust for our medical experts right now. As a result, the data doesn't seem to be backing up the narrative of what's happening. And so I know a lot of people are kind of looking more into this idea of what is a virus? Is this a typical viral epidemic? When will it end? You know, these peaks, everybody's looking at peaks and these um, prognoses that they have for what's coming next. So you have a different take, a slightly different take on this, and you talk about it on your website. Um, I'd love you to go into kind of your view on virology and, and you want to talk about the history of it so that people can kind of understand where it lines up with what we're doing today. Okay. So it's really sort of the history of virology to a certain extent, but probably more appropriately called the history of the contagious uh, theory of disease. And what I mean by that is, so for literally thousands of years, and we have evidence from this from Greek times, uh, people made the very reasonable observation that disease was contagious. And you can even still make those observations yourself. You know, you get sick and then your friend gets sick or your husband or wife gets sick, your child gets sick, and then some, your, you know, the next child gets sick, and they seem to have similar things. And so it's, very, it's, it's a very reasonable uh, hypothesis that there's something being passed from one person to another that makes each of them sick one after the other. So, so this theory has been around for, you know, like I said, basically thousands of years. Now, I would point out two things about this theory. It's basically called the germ theory. The first is that amongst all the medical systems in the world, so we're talking Chinese medicine, homeopathy, Ayurvedic medicine, Native American medicine, etc., none of them actually thought diseases were contagious. They had totally different explanations for why people got sick, and none of them said it was because of unseen germs making them sick. Now, of course, that doesn't prove anything because maybe they were just all wrong, but it's certainly interesting. Uh, the other thing I would point out is, you know, a lot of people, when they hear me talk, they give me example after example of, 
you know, my child got sick and then somebody else, or I had sex with somebody and then I got herpes, or the people in Italy got uh, COVID-19 and then the people in Spain did it, and somebody went to a nursing home and then they got sick. So these are all epidemiological observations. In other words, they're observations that uh, are used by epidemiologists to generate hypotheses. And then the scientists have to go and find out what the cause of these epidemiological observations are. And the reason I point that out is I don't need people to send me more epidemiological observations about infectious disease. There are thousands of them that would make anybody in their right mind investigate whether there's a microbial cause of disease. And so I am perfectly willing to say that we should investigate the, you know, viral or bacterial cause of, of a lot of disease. But I would also point out that there's been a number of cases where the epidemiology didn't lead to uh, the conclusion that it was caused by a microbe. One of the best examples is in the 17 and 1800s, literally thousands of sailors died on ships. And, you know, their teeth fell out, and then they had went into heart failure, and it started with one, and then it seemed to spread from one person to the next. And for literally almost 100 years, the doctors and scientists postulated an infectious etiology, an infectious cause of, of this malady. And then someday, somebody ate a lime, and the whole thing went away, and they found out that this was called scurvy, and it was caused by a vitamin C deficiency, which affects your collagen formation, and that's why their teeth fell out and they went into heart failure, and there was no microbe involved. The same thing happened with pellagra. The same thing happened with beriberi. And for those people who say that the definition of, of meaning it's a, caused by a virus is if a lot of people die in the same place, that it must be a virus, I would only point out that I think a lot of people died when we blew off a bomb in Hiroshima, and I don't think anybody thinks that was a virus. And people say, well, yeah, but if it's spread, then it must be a virus. And I would also point out that the same thing, or a similar thing, happened in Chernobyl, and then it spread across Eastern Europe, and a lot of people got sick and died, and I don't think anybody thinks that was a virus. In other words, we don't... We don't use epidemiology to prove viral causation. We do it by a very specific method, which interestingly is the same method we would use to prove that anything causes anything. So let's go back now. So in the 1860s, they had all this thousands of years of thinking there must be a contagious cause of a lot of diseases, but they couldn't see anything. And then they invented the microscope, the light microscope. And they had what I call the first eureka moment in microbiology. In other words, this person got sick, and you could find a bacteria in their tonsils or in their blood or somewhere. And then the, the next person got sick, and they had the same bacteria. And eureka, we proved that the bacteria was spread from one to the other, and that became essentially the germ theory. Okay, so, so let's look at this a little bit, because there's a very interesting way of 
sorting out uh, what happened here. And the way that I think it's best to describe this, imagine you have a cow, and for whatever reason, you don't feed the cow properly. So you feed it cardboard and dead cow parts and grains, and you put it in, you dip it in flea poison, and you spray it with glyphosate, and you end up with a cow that's not so healthy, and we all know that all that stuff comes out in the milk. So then you have essentially sick milk, and then somebody drinks the milk, and they get diarrhea. And then you say to yourself, so we have an epidemiological observation of contagion, and so we want to find out what happened. So you do a microbe, and again, it's a very uh, it's a very reasonable hypothesis that it's caused by some microbe in the milk. And so you do an examination of the milk, and you find a bacteria called Listeria. And then you do an examination of the stool of the person who got sick, and you find the same bacteria called Listeria. So again, you say the, the milk was infected, and the person drank the milk, and they got a Listeria infection, and that gave them diarrhea. End of story. The problem is there is another explanation for that exact observation, which is the cow was poisoned. We now know that all the poisons come out in the milk. And the role of bacteria in nature is to biodegrade poison. So the reason you get listeria, which are always around, there's always spores of listeria in the air and probably in the milk, is because the listeria were helping you out and eating the poisons that shouldn't have been in the milk. Because after all, if you look into nature and you say, what is the role of bacteria and fungus and other microorganisms? You would say, if you have a compost pile and you put dead squirrels in the compost pile, you'll get funky bacteria eating the squirrels. Nobody says the compost pile has an infection. And then interestingly, if you transfer those bacteria to a, a normal compost pile, they don't grow. So you cannot prove contagion with a compost pile. The same thing, if you poison a pond, you'll get algae growth. Nobody says the pond has an infection. They say the algae is biodegrading the poisons in the pond. So we have now another perfectly reasonable theory, a theory that coincides with everything that every human being can observe in nature. I mean, imagine if we didn't have microbes eating dead stuff, what a forest would look like. You know, the tree dies, and then the microbes come and digest the forest, the tree, and recycle it into humus. If you, if you think that's an infection and you kill the microbes, you'd end up killing the forest in no time. Mm -hmm. So we have these two theories. One is the bacteria, and two is the milk. And the bacteria are only there biodegrading the milk. Now, uh, both of those, as I say, are very reasonable. The question is, they can't both be true. So how do you sort out which one is true? And it's a very simple answer. Anybody would say, all you have to do is isolate the listeria from the milk. And so you give it to somebody with pure listeria. In other words, not the milk. And you see if they get sick. And this is what Louis Pasteur and literally hundreds of scientists did in the eight, late 1800s, attempting to prove 
that a isolated bacteria could make any animal or human sick. And having spent the last six months looking for a study that proves that, I think I can confidently say there is not one study that shows that an isolated bacteria can make either an animal or a human sick. As shocking as that sounds to people, uh, there is simply no experimental evidence that that's the case, in which case it must be the milk. And here's where it gets interesting. You know, from the way I look at the world, I would say I don't have a dog in this race. You know, if it's the listeria, then you use antibiotics and kill the bacteria. If it's the milk, then stop poisoning the cow. And if so I don't really care which one the substance is, it turns out it's the milk. And it turns out the listeria are biodegrading the toxins in the milk. And so any reasonable person would say the solution to that problem is we should stop poisoning the cow. So that's how this whole thing got started. And I can tell you in the late 1800s, there was most of the doctors and some very famous ones like a guy named Antoine Béchamp said, that's nonsense. It's all about what he called the terrain, which essentially he means the mill. But for some reason, and we don't need to get into that, this sort of germ theory won, and that therefore pretty much every disease from then on was supposedly caused by these germs. Now, the next step in this process was there was a number of diseases, in particular polio, where a lot of people were getting sick. It looked like it was contagious. And they did examinations of their spine and their brain and their blood and their mucus and their stool, and there was no bacteria to be found. And so at that point, they postulated that well, there must be something smaller than a bacteria, which we just can't see because we don't have the equipment to see it, and it's still contagious. We just can't find it, and we're going to call it a virus, which is the sort of Latin word for poison. And that became the sort of second part of the germ theory. We can't find a, a bacteria, so we call it a virus. And then they went about proving that uh, these diseases, particularly at that time polio, was actually contagious. And here's how they did it. And people should pay very close attention to this because it's essentially the same way we do it today. They took people who had polio and they ground up their brains or their spinal cord or they took their stool or, or different mucus or any sort of bodily fluid. They didn't see anything because they couldn't see anything smaller than bacteria. And then they would feed this to all different kinds of animals by the thousand. And interestingly, none of the animals got sick. And this was in spite of the fact that they said that this virus was spread by the oral-fecal route. Right. In other words, they could have got sick by giving it to them oral. But they were very clear that none of them did. And so they said at that point, well, it, that must mean there's no animal models of polio. In other words, somehow humans are the only animals, if you want to use that word for humans, that are susceptible to this virus. I mean, first of all, that's a very peculiar conclusion to draw from that. But anyways, maybe it's true. 
So then they said, okay, we're going to inject this uh, unpurified ground-up brains or spine or snot or stool. We're going to inject it subcutaneously into all these thousands of animals. And again, none got sick. And then they injected it different places, none got sick. And then finally, 1907, came the proof that polio was contagious. They took a child who had polio, they extracted some of their spinal cord, they ground it up in a blender, they didn't purify anything, they didn't isolate anything, they didn't extract anything. They had no idea what was in there except ground up, diseased spine. And then they took two monkeys, and they drilled a hole in the skull of the monkeys. One of them, they injected about half a cup, or both of them, they injected about half a cup of this unpurified stuff into the monkey's brain. One monkey died, one got paralyzed. They didn't do a control. They didn't inject saline to see if just injecting half a cup of anything causes a herniation in their brain, or, or maybe monkeys don't like having holes drilled in their skull and injecting stuff in there. And one of the monkeys got paralyzed. You can see the original study, which I looked at. They hold it up by the scruff of the neck and say, see, we proved polio is contagious. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you, but that doesn't sound like science to me. Yeah, we actually had, we had Forrest Moretti who... I'm, I don't know if you yeah. know him, but as an author, Moth in the Iron Lung, talking about just another different view of the whole polio situation and it being very different than everything we've all been told and kind of just discussing these alternative theories because I grew up, of course, just like everybody else thinking this is what happened and this is why vaccines are so important. And if we don't do this, everybody's going to become paralyzed and et cetera, et cetera. We hear that a lot in the current vaccine debate. Uh, polio is always the thing brought up. So I was really interested in his book, just the just the idea of an alternative theory here. And, and that's interesting to me because it, it definitely makes you think when you look at it historically and you and you see some of these things so I'm I'm not that far off from what you're saying because I'm I'm familiar with it but I know a lot of people aren't and I suggest that they look into it because it changes everything if that's true well I can guarantee you that you know or like I say we just wrote a book on this called the contagion myth and it's like I say if you can if anybody listening can send me a study showing isolated, purified polio virus has ever caused a disease given in any reasonable way to an animal or a human, I won't write this book. Because I can tell you it doesn't exist. It simply doesn't exist. There is no valid experimental evidence that shows that this virus either can be purified and isolated and if it can, that it can actually cause disease in any human or animal model. So the next thing that happened is, so they go for 30 years saying this disease or that disease must be a virus. We can't see anything, but we know it must be because it looks like it's contagious, even though we're all clear that epidemiological evidence, you know, what about the people in the nursing home? What about the people on the ship? None of that is actually proving causation, and you can be dramatically fooled by that, and nobody in the scientific world thinks those sort of observations prove causation of a microbe for any disease. That's very clear. So they go on, and they can't find anything, 
And then in the early 1930s, they invent the electron microscope. So now you can see things much smaller than a light microscope. And they had what they call, what I call their second eureka moment. So they looked at the, the diseased tissue. Again, we're mostly talking about polio, but they saw this in other illnesses that they couldn't find the bacteria. And they see these particles, which are much smaller than bacteria, and they're found in more abundance in sick people. They seem to be different kinds in certain kind of sickness and not in others. And they, and they seem to have genetic material in it and other proteins. And again, this was a eureka moment. We thought there was something smaller. We called it a virus. That's, now we see it under the electron microscope. That's the virus we were looking for. Now we found out what really causes polio, et cetera, because we see these particles under the electron microscope. But again, you know, they, we have this, these rules called Koch postulates of how you have to prove infectious causation. The rules are the same way if I said, you know, there's a flying saucer over your head, you might say, how do you know that? And I would say, well, because I, I can see it, and I see there's only a flying saucer. And if I said something like, well, I can hear the wind through the phone, you might say, Tom, that doesn't prove it's a flying saucer because it might be the wind. Or if I said, there's little pieces of metal under your chair, and I think those only could come from a flying saucer, you might say, but Tom, how do you know it's from a flying saucer if you didn't isolate, purify, and characterize the flying saucer first and know that those pieces of metal could have only come from that flying saucer and not from the bottom of your chair or an airplane or something else falling around or there might be metal shards all over the place? Who knows? Right. We all have a sense of how we, we know something about, you know, because you have to see it, you have to isolate it, and then you have to show that that thing that's isolated and purified causes disease. So they go back and they see these particles, and then they develop very good ways of isolating and purifying them. The ways are you take the tissue, like the polio disease spine, and you grind it up in a blender, and that just you know shakes things up a little bit. And then you put it through a filter that filters out every, you know, thing smaller than a bacteria. So in other words, the only thing that goes through the filter is things smaller than a, than a bacteria. And then you filter out a lot of cellular debris, a lot of any bacteria or anything you, you mostly don't want in there. And then you put it through a high-density sucrose gradient, which is a centrifuge, that spins it out into various bands depending on the molecular weight. And what you find is the viruses spin out at a very particular weight. And so you have a band of now isolated, purified viruses. This is exactly how in 1973 the Pasteur Institute said is the only way to know whether you have a virus. And then you micro-pipette out that band you put it on a slide, and you see that, that the only thing you have in that band are these one viruses, like a polio virus or a chickenpox virus. 
or uh, coronavirus or any other virus. You have isolated, purified uh, virus, and now you can introduce those to an animal or a human if you want. If it's, you want to do that's a little unethical, but animal study and see if they make them sick. They did that for 20 years. The conclusion was these isolated, purified viruses make no animal sick no matter how they did it. They could not find any evidence that isolated, purified virus made any animal or human being sick at all. They eventually, in the early 50s, said, well, we looked into this, we found these particles, we don't know what they are. They seem to be actually detoxification mechanisms. In other words, when you poison a cell or a tissue, it actually deteriorates and it packages this tissue, the, you know, the genetic material and a little bit of debris and proteins in a little package, which is what they were seeing, and then it actually communicates essentially through a kind of resonance phenomena what, what kind of damage happened. And that actually becomes the, the rapid way evolution happens. In other words, if you poison somebody with arsenic, you create a certain kind of genetic deterioration, which then is packaged up by the cell, and then it communicates to the other organisms around them what actual happened, and so they can defend themselves. Right. And this is exactly what trees do. You put, you put beetles on a tree, if they send out genetic pieces and proteins and chemicals through the roots, they communicate to the other trees. There's beetles afoot. You guys should defend yourself. And that's a big part of the reason why you see similar defense mechanisms happening in all the trees. And the reason for this is because, lo and behold, this theory that evolution happens through random mutations and genetic selection is actually nonsense. The way evolution happens, because if you think about it, if you have to wait for a tree or a human who has a mutation to spread that through the whole population, it would be 10,000 years before everybody got the message. And by that time, we'd either all be dead or there'd be a new toxin. So, so there has to be a different way. And these, are, these genetic messengers are actually what we call viruses. And they spread and they, uh, other organisms pick them up. And if they're exposed to the same toxin, they're pre-warned. So they make a defensive response. A defensive response is what we call measles and chickenpox, et cetera, um, those are not illnesses. Those are protective detoxification responses. So that's what happened, uh, and they sort of disproved that it was contagious. And then some of the final step in this process, and a guy named Embers in 1952 to 54, and unfortunately he was given the Nobel Prize for this, said, no, I can prove these viruses are contagious in another way. So here's how he did it. He took, essentially, he, he used measles as, as, as his model. He took the snot from somebody with measles. He didn't purify it. He just centrifuged it a little bit. So he, didn't, he doesn't have isolated, purified viruses in the way that they already learned to do it. They then inoculated that on a tissue culture, like monkey kidney cells or 
human fetal skin cells or a lot of other tissues, egg cells. And interestingly, it didn't work and it didn't kill the egg or the kidney or the tissue. It just didn't kill them. And so they said initially, well, these viruses or the snot, whatever is in there, that doesn't kill the cell. And Embers had a brilliant idea, he said. I can actually starve and poison the set of the tissue. In other words, I can withdraw the nutrients from the tissue, like the egg, and I can poison it with antibiotics and bleach and a few other things. And that will make it easier for the virus to kill the egg. And then I can show that the virus kills the egg. And the first thing when I read that, I thought, you know, so much for the killer virus theory. It can't even kill a, a tissue culture unless you starve and poison it first. And then we also know that if you starve and poison tissue, it will disintegrate into these genetic pieces. And you don't know whether it's doing that because you starved and poisoned it or because there's some virus. Because amazingly, they didn't even do controls. They didn't just starve and poison the tissue and see what happens with that. One guy did, and he was able to prove that the exact same thing happens, and this eventually went, and it was about measles, it eventually went to the German Supreme Court because he offered anybody a hundred thousand dollars, hundred thousand euros, sorry, prize if they could prove that the measles virus exists. Not even that it causes disease, just that it exists. And they couldn't prove it, and the court sided with him and said, there is no evidence that this measles virus exists. Because the exact same thing happened with the snot from the measles person as just putting saline on it as long as you starve and poison the tissue. And when you look at the current way that all the viruses have been proved to cause disease since, we're talking HIV, we're talking Ebola, we're talking Zika, we're talking coronavirus, we're talking flu viruses, etc. It's the same method. They take unpurified, unisolated, even though sometimes they say they isolated it, but if you actually read the paper, you find out they didn't isolate it. And they, they put that on starved and poisoned tissue culture, which then disintegrates, and that forms all these particles, which are detoxification and cellular debris. Uh, that is actually what we call a live viral vaccine. We inject that into people. The dead virus vaccine, they add other synthetic things and different proteins in it. But that is what we call a live viral vaccine. And when they actually uh, examined this, they, the only case that was actually scientifically examined was measles. And the conclusion was there's no evidence this virus even exists because the exact same thing happened even if we didn't start with the measles virus. Interesting. So there we go. That's where we are today. And I've looked at all the papers on the proof of coronavirus causing anything, the proof of Zika virus causing anything. It's all this same, you know, taking unpurified stuff from sick people. They have no idea what's in there. They have no idea if there's a toxin. They don't investigate any other epidemiological uh, observation. They inoculate that onto a poisoned and starved tissue culture because it won't 
it won't kill a normal tissue culture. Then they get unpurified stuff. And then, like in, in the coronavirus, they then inject that stuff that they get into a bunch of mice that are genetically programmed to get sick if you inject them with genetic material. And that was the proof that, you know, COVID-19 is caused by coronavirus. And all I can say is if anybody uh, has a paper out there in the scientific literature that disputes this and says they have evidence of a isolated, purified, characterized virus causing disease in any animal or human people, and it's absolutely the method I described, like I said, I will stop the publication of this book because obviously I was wrong. And all I can say is, you know, having grown up the same way as everybody else, I would never ex have expected that I would be saying this 30 years ago. In fact, I didn't know anything about how we went about proving this in the first place. The whole thing, I had to educate myself. And over the years, I unfortunately got a lot of it incorrect because I just couldn't believe that this was the way this came about. But now, after examining and examining and talking to a, my whole team of people, all of whom have looked through the literature, as far as I can see, this is as accurate as I can get it. So we're going to stop there for part one of this episode with Dr. Tom Cowan. And I know this is all very different and new information. And it's kind of cool just to sit there and play around with what if what I was told about this isn't what it is? I mean, that's kind of what we need to do to keep becoming these better critical thinkers and to either validate what we believe before or change course with what we believe before. There's nothing wrong with changing course as long as it's based on something, actual evidence. So people like to think, oh, you're so on one side of this. Like, listen, this is where the evidence is taking me. You want to show me something else? Then show it to me and I'm happy to change my stance on something. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this first part of the episode with Dr. Tom Cowan on what they aren't telling you. 